ever wonder what the Bible has to say about some of the biggest issues we face today? How do you sort through things like our political climate, social issues, and what it means to live out your faith in a dynamically changing world? How do you view these topics through Jesus' vantage point? 312 is back with our new series, Vantage Points. Join us as we discuss what the Bible has to say about some of the most pressing issues we face in our culture today. We'll also continue building a community of believers with fun events that you will not want to miss. 312, knowing God and making God known in Chicago and to the ends of the earth. Everybody, how y'all doing? Very good. Um, as Lauren said, my name is uh, Gerald Heastan, and I am a pastor at Calvary Memorial Church, which is in Oak Park. And uh, I don't know if you guys get out to Oak Park. It's a nice little village uh, next to the city. But uh, good to be here. Jeff uh, asked me to come speak to you guys, or he's the one that gave me the invitation. And uh, I've written a book. Uh, it's about 10 years old now, so it's a little out of date because things are moving so fast, but I wrote a book called Sex, Dating, and Relationships, and he read that, and he liked it, and then he asked me to come speak, but he asked me to speak on marriage, but then I heard Lauren just say I was supposed to be speaking on relationships, so I came with a talk prepared on marriage, but maybe Jeff wanted me to talk on relationships. I don't know, but marriages are relationships, right? So that all works together, right? So um, he asked me to speak on marriage and, uh, and left it pretty open. And so I was trying to figure out what sort of direction to go as it relates uh, to marriage. And there's a lot of different ways one could go. And I was pulling up all the different talks and lessons and teachings that I've done on marriage. And there's all sorts of different directions. Um, in Oak Park, it's probably not a whole lot different uh, here uh, than uh, in the city for those of you that are living in Chicago. But Oak Park's a, quite a progressive community. And uh, to give you a little bit of an indication, when the pandemic hit back in 2020, uh, San Francisco voluntarily went shelter in place, and Oak Park was the next municipality to go shelter in place. So we are like a sister city to San Francisco. So if you have any sense of how San Francisco rolls, uh, that's kind of how Oak Park rolls. So we're a, uh, we're a very progressive community on all matters of sexuality and gender, and so it's interesting uh, pastoring in that community. And it requires us to be very thoughtful, and it's the same, I think, for folks that are living uh, in the city, or if you're like under 25 years old, it's all, it's kind of the same everywhere, right? So, uh, so thinking about the issue of marriage, uh, and trying to figure out how to move into it. I want to kind of think about marriage and address it a bit from, from a bit of some of the cultural uh, concerns that are, that are up in the air uh, related to marriage. And part of the uh, kind of cultural concerns I think that we get around the question of marriage is just generally, uh, is marriage good? And is marriage just simply a patriarchal institution that has been uh, invented by men to keep women down, and the sooner we get free of it, the better? And so there is this movement away just in terms of uh, kind of cultural um, enthusiasm uh, for the institution of marriage. And so I think there's some questions out there about uh, the legitimacy of marriage, which really kind of tie into some larger questions about uh, Christianity 
Is Christianity good? Particularly, is it good for women? And I think in our culture, uh, and again, as you move into more progressive communities, there is this question that has, I think, in progressive communities been roundly answered as Christianity is not particularly good for women. And so I want to think about marriage and Christianity, how those will go together to the degree to which that they have been good for women. I was reading a book by a feminist theologian a couple years ago, and uh, Edith Schaffler is a feminist theologian, and she had a, a church wedding, and her fellow feminists uh, were dismayed that she was getting married to begin with, and then even worse, she was going to get married in a church. And so uh, one of her friends offered the ironic suggestion that perhaps she was getting married in a church with a church wedding because it would have been too risky for her to live alone if God were not there, to live all alone with a man if God were not present, right? So there's this thought that Christianity, marriage, these are not uh, necessarily good things for women. And if you uh, can think back to The Handmaid's Tale uh, and the Me Too movement, those things kind of overlapped together. So when Me Too really kind of landed on the scene in 2018, uh, one of the ways uh, that uh, that was sort of demonstrated publicly uh, was for women to dress up in the Handmaid's Tales outfits, which of course is a very patriarchal uh, uh, TV show, which I've not seen. Maybe some of you have, have seen that, but... Um, and the assumption, the connection there again is that Christianity is kind of at the root of kind of the patriarchy that kind of plagues our larger society. And the more that we can disentangle ourselves from Christianity, the better it will be for women. And so Christian visions of marriage are actually not good for women. So this is a bit of the, uh, the kind of cultural moment that I want to speak into. And my thesis is that Christianity and the Christian vision of marriage is in fact and has indeed been good for women. So that's my thesis. That shouldn't be too surprising since you came to a, uh, to a church gathering uh, to hear a pastor say that he thinks Christianity has been good uh, for women and that marriage is a worthwhile institution. But that's where we're going to go. So I, uh, before a um, number of uh, years ago, finished up a PhD in classics. And if you know anything about classics, that's like the Greco-Roman history. So I have some, uh, some, some information or kind of a way into this conversation coming in through the Greco-Roman context. So here's what, how I want to think about this tonight. I want to think about uh, Christian marriage when it kind of lands on the scene in the first century. What is it dropping into? Right? Like, what is the context in which the New Testament is written? And I want us to think about what was going on in the larger Greco-Roman world when Christianity shows up. All right? So here's a little bit of some of the context that uh, we see in the backdrop of the New Testament. We're not going to see all this specifically in the New Testament, but this is the world of the New Testament that's going on. So in the Greco-Roman world, it was a highly patriarchal uh, society, oppressively so. It was, it was, a, bad, it was a bad situation. And uh, male Roman citizens were in the dominant power positions in the Greco-Roman world in ways that um, we might uh, not fully appreciate or imagine if we think that today's culture is oppressively patriarchal. It's kind of like we haven't seen patriarchy like you've seen patriarchy in, in the Roman world. It was, it was very oppressive uh, to women in very bad ways. The ideal Roman wife in the Greco-Roman world was to be 
quiet, and then here's the term that you often see in some of the Greco-Roman uh, literature, uneventful. She's to, to not to be seen. Like the more she is sort of in the background, the better. So this is the conception of the ideal Roman woman is to be uh, very much unseen and to be quiet. One of the indicators that we can see, again, of kind of the heavy patriarchy that's taking place in the Greco-Roman world is that when families would name daughters, they would often name multiple daughters with the same name. So you would have Macrina the younger, Macrina the older. I'm not sure what you do if you have three Macrinas, what you would, Macrina the middle or however that works, right? But there was, they wouldn't even come up with a second name for their daughters. The, 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 the daughters were largely uh, conceived of in utilitarian ways. I don't want to overstate that because there was love in the Greco-Roman families, but daughters were fundamentally seen as strategic assets for marrying off to other family relations or to other families that would advance the family's standing socially, right? So whether it would be a business connection, whether it would be um, some important social connection, uh, that was the, the function of what daughters were for. And since daughters were valuable as assets socially and economically, they were very uh, often highly regulated in their uh, interaction in the larger society. So female virginity was highly regarded uh, as a marriageable quality, and therefore uh, uh, Greco-Roman families would often cloister their daughters, and they would not be allowed out of the home uh, unless they were escorted by uh, either a tutor in the family or a male uh, guardian of some sort. So there was not a lot of um, social freedom uh, for women in the Greco-Roman world. A lot of what you might think of uh, when you think about maybe what it's like for women in heavily Islamic countries, it was similar in that sort of, uh, similar to that sort of context. One of the things, again, that shows the kind of heavy patriarchal nature of the Greco-Roman context is that there were no laws against sexual assault in the Greco-Roman world for, for women that were unattached. What that means is a woman that didn't have the guardianship of either a husband or a father or a woman who was a slave to someone, to a male Roman citizen. If a woman was unattached in society, then really it was fair game. There were no laws against rape or sexual assault in those contexts. It wasn't illegal. So there wasn't any uh, sanctity of the female body that was derivative to the female body. It was all derivative to whoever owned the female, right, or whoever was the guardian of the female. So this was not a uh, friendly society in many respects to women. And there was a clear double standard uh, regarding chastity, uh, in, even in marriage. And Plutarch is a uh, platonic, he's a, he's a Greek philosopher. So he wrote a book called Conjugual Precepts, which was a book on like marriage advice. So you can kind of think of him like a Dr. Phil, like a, like a second century Dr. Phil, right? And uh, he was an intellectual, he was a historian, he was a priest in one of the pagan religions, he was a writer. And so he would write sort of moralias or he morals on like how to live and conduct your life. And so he wrote a book that was for newly married husbands and wives. And here gives you a little taste of some of the advice that he gave. Now this, again, comes, uh, let me find my, my note here. Okay, so this is what he says. Uh, this is a book he's written to newly married couples. He says, the lawful wives of the Persian kings sit beside them at dinner and eat with them. But when the kings wish to be merry and get drunk, they send their wives away 
and send for their music girls and concubines. Insofar, they are right in what they do because they do not concede any share in their licentiousness and debauchery to their wedded wives. If therefore a man in private life who is incontinent and dissolute in regard to his pleasure commits some peccadillo with a paramour or a maidservant, his wedded wife ought not to be indignant or angry, but she should reason that it is respect for her which leads him to share his debauchery, licentiousness, and wantonness with another woman. So there's some interesting logic, isn't it? Right? He's basically telling the new wives, listen, if your husband gets drunk and he sleeps with a prostitute or a mistress or one of the dancing girls, don't feel bad because better for him to sleep and have sex with, one of the, with those women while he's drunk than to bring that over to you. Right? And this was the logic that was at work within the Greco-Roman world. So here along comes Jesus, and then along comes the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul is coming with a new vision of marriage. Right? So that's the backdrop in which the Apostle Paul is bringing his vision of marriage. And we're going to look at his vision of marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. If you, I don't know if you guys have Bibles here or not, but maybe you've got a Bible on your phone, but you can turn uh, in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 if you've got it, one. And to set up this uh, look at Ephesians chapter 5, I want to go back to Plutarch. He's got a, some, another section in his uh, conjugal precepts where, he, again, he's giving kind of a, uh, uh, a description of how husbands and wives relate to each other. And um, it's going to get very interestingly close in some ways to the way that Paul writes. You're going to see some parallels in it because I want you to listen here between Plutarch and Paul. And I want to draw out some of the parallels because uh, there's the distinctions that are made in the way that Paul writes compared to how Plutarch writes. So Plutarch, later in his conjugal precepts, he says, um, he says this. Rich men and princes, by conferring honors on philosophers, adorn both themselves and the philosophers. But on the other hand, philosophers, by paying court to the rich, do not enhance the repute of the rich, but lower their own. So it is with women also. If they subordinate themselves to their husbands, they are commended. But if they want to have control, they cut a sorrier figure than the subjects of their control. And control ought to be exercised by the man over the woman, not as the owner has control of a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body, by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through goodwill. As therefore it is possible to exercise care over the body without being a slave to its pleasures and desires, so it is possible to govern a wife and at the same time to delight and to gratify her. Now frankly, this is pretty enlightened as far as you find uh, in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Plutarch is concerned here that there is an exercise of care over uh, the wife in a way that leads to her delight and gratification, so he is concerned for her well-being. But he uses an analogy here or a metaphor to describe the relationship between the husband and the wife. Did anyone catch the analogy? There's a lot in that text. You may not have gotten it. It says the husband, uh, what's that? Yeah, body and soul. Good listening. Yeah, he he uses the analogy of body and soul. Now, 
to understand the analogy that he's using of body and soul, though, you have to understand a little bit that he is a Platonic philosopher, and in the Platonic uh, mindset, right, the, there's, a, there's, an, there's an ontological difference. There's a difference of being between the body and the soul. The soul is the good thing. The body is the unruly and kind of the dangerous thing, right? So the more uh, ensouled a person is in Platonic thought, the better. The more bodily a person is, the worse. So when, when Plutarch is using the analogy of a body and a soul, the soul's job is to control and to regulate the body. It's, it's, it's not... The worst analogy, I mean, I can think of worse analogies like slave and master, but it's not a very generous analogy towards women, frankly. But he uses this analogy of body and soul. All right, now I want to go and look at Paul's analogy, that as Paul, now we've been looking at the Greco-Roman context, it's not especially pretty, frankly, it's not... Uh, the sort of place uh, that, that, frankly, I would want my daughter uh, to grow up in, uh, in that kind of a context. So now we look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And you're going to hear some, of, some similarities, but it's also going to be different. So in chapter 5, we begin uh, in verse 22. And Paul says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, and he who loves his wife loves himself, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. All right, now Paul's got actually a couple different uh, metaphors going here, but he's got one metaphor uh, when he's talking about, uh, he says the, the, the wife is the what of the husband. The wife is the what of the husband. Starts with a B, rhymes with Adi, body. Yeah, the the wife is the body of the husband. The husband is the head of the wife. So the analogy that Paul uses is head and body, not soul and body. All right, now that's an interesting twist and difference because Paul is using the the both uh, parts of the analogy are coming from the body. They're coming from the same sort of. Um, uh, there's, not a, there's not a better than and less than, like how Plutarch has it. He's calling it, we're from the same part of the body. But it's interesting then how he also uses the language uh, and the framework of how husbands and wives are related to each other. So Plutarch uses the language of submission for wives, and he uses the language of govern and control for husbands. So what a husband is to do is he is to govern and control his wife in the same way that a soul governs and controls the unruly body. But Paul, when he uses the language of uh, the relationship between the husband and wife, he's using the language of head and body. And he says that the, the, the wife is to submit to the husband. So that's similar uh, to Paul and Plutarch. 
But then Paul, when he speaks about what the husband, his actions toward the wife are to be, he doesn't use the language of govern and control. What, what language does he use in this passage? If you don't have your Bible in front of you, it might be hard to remember all that we just read. But No, Paul's, no, Paul, no. So the wife is submitting to the husband. What is the husband doing back to the wife? He's loving, right? So when Paul frames up what the husband's posture is towards the wife, it's not a posture of governance and control, but it's a posture of love, and, and we might even add more fully, sacrificial love, right? So Paul is saying the husband is to love his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church, which is, requires giving oneself up for one's wife. Right, so the, the relationship between the husband and the wife in Paul's framework is one of uh, sacrifice and... So we could put it like this. The, the, the relationship between husband and wife in Plutarch is wife submits, husband governs, husband leads. But in Paul, it's wife submits, husband loves. And what's interesting in Paul and in the New Testament is that at no point in the New Testament or any of Paul's writings are men ever told to lead their wives. They're never told to govern their wives. They're never told to control their wives. They're not told to lead their wives. They're told to love their wives. And sometimes I think it may be a more conservative uh, Christian circles. We can think that the framework that the Christian is, that the, that the Bible is putting together is women submit or wives submit and husbands lead. But that's actually a Greco-Roman Plutarchian uh, vision of marriage. That's not the New Testament vision of marriage. The New Testament vision of marriage is women submit, and that term really could just be rendered respect. Uh, women submit, and then husbands love. And so husbands are doing a very different thing than what uh, the Greco-Roman context was. But Paul introduces an even deeper metaphor here in this passage. It's not just the metaphor of the head to the body. But even more uh, fundamentally, uh, Paul introduces the metaphor of Christ and the church. And so when Paul is giving instructions then to the, to the husband and wife about how they are to relate to each other, he's drawing his instructions from the blueprint, as it were, of Christ's relationship with the church. So verse 31, Paul says this, uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. So the mystery of a man and a woman becoming one flesh, like a head and a body. It's profound, and then Paul says, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And what Paul is saying here is that the mystery of a man and a woman becoming one with each other refers to or points towards something beyond itself. It, that union is not just about the union of the husband and wife. That union is a picture that points towards Christ's relationship with the church. So that when a husband and wife are trying to think about what, what do I do as a husband? What do I do as a wife? How do I relate to my, uh, to my spouse? The husband and wife looks to the picture of Christ and the church and how Christ and the church relate to each other, and that becomes the model then for how the husband and wife relate to each other. So in the same way that the church defers to and submits to Christ, so the wife then defers to and submits to or respects her husband, 
And in the same way that Christ gives up his life and loves and cares for the church sacrificially, this becomes the model for how the husband is to care for his wife. And in the same way that Christ uh, leads the church, you can think here about how does Christ lead the church? Well, when Christ leads the church, he leads the church by inviting the church. This is how Christ leads us as his people. Jesus describes himself as a shepherd, right? And if you know anything about uh, raising sheep, which I know almost nothing about raising sheep, but one of the things I do know about raising sheep is that when a shepherd leads his sheep, he just walks out in front of the sheep and he invites them to follow him. He calls them by name. It's very different than how a cattle driver leads his cattle. A cattle driver always comes from behind and forces the cattle to go a certain way, right? But Jesus doesn't ever force us. Like his leadership in our lives is not a coercive leadership. It's an invitation. And so if husbands are thinking about, well, what does it look like for me to lead in my family, right? Well, it means that like you lead in the way that Christ leads. It's, it's a walking out in front invitation that is not coercive and that allows room for one's wife to make her own choices about whether or not she's going to follow in that, all the while demonstrating sacrificial love that clears the way uh, for his wife. And so there is uh, this um, analogy that Paul brings in, not just of the head body uh, and care, but also this analogy of Christ and the church. But I want to draw one more point out of this uh, not just this passage, but this uh, analogy of Christ in the church that Paul brings out here in Ephesians 5. Because one of the things that happens, I think, when this passage gets used to think about and talk about marriage um, is if Christ is the head of the church in the same way that the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ's job is to care for and love and protect uh, and sacrifice for the, uh, the church. And that provides the blueprint then for how the husband is sacrificing care and love for his wife. If you just stop right there, like if we just said, let's pray amen and been done. It's not terrible, but it's missing some important elements of the Christ church relationship. Because what can happen if you stop there is that the the mindset becomes that the role of the husband is to sort of always be in a position of kind of uh, paternally taking care of the wife. And it becomes, it it, it leads to sort of a diminutive account of uh, the wife's relationship to the husband. But when we look at the full picture of how Christ relates to the church, Christ doesn't always just maintain a sort of superior posture in relation to the church, where he's always just sort of above the church, just sort of taking care of the the little bride, right? That's not the way that he relates to us. So if we look back earlier in Paul's letter, in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and then 2, Paul talks about how Christ has been uh, raised up by God into this position of universal and cosmic authority and how, how Christ, in being raised up, has raised the church up with him so that Christ, in his sacrificial love for the church, comes down from heaven, as it were, sacrificially gives himself for us, but in giving himself for us, he raises us back up with him to a place of mutual dignity and co-equality and rulership with him. 
right? So the vision that Paul is laying out for the way that husbands and wives are to relate to each other follows this picture of Christ in the church, which doesn't always keep a picture of Christ and the church, but rather Christ to the church and bringing the church to a place of mutual dignity and equality. So as we want to lean into what the New Testament vision of marriage is, or the New Testament vision, uh, or Paul's vision of marriage, we need to follow that Christ church metaphor all the way through to the end. Not just the sacrificial dying for the church, but the sacrificial dying for the church that then allows the church to be raised up to a place of mutual dignity and equality in the way that the church now relates to Christ in the world. So there is this place of us sincerely and truly being a uh, expression of Christ's work in the world. Christ works out his will in the world through us. There's a mutual partnership that takes place between Christ and the church. I'm a complementarian, if you know what that term means, but complementarian visions of marriage, I think, uh, get the first part often right, that Christ is sacrificially taking care of the church, but they often fall short on the second part of, of elevating the church to a place of mutual dignity and equality. And so I want, I want to just stress that point because I think both of those uh, are super important. All right, we're getting probably to the limits of my time, so let me just think here about what I want to try to say before we get going. Um, Maybe I'll just finish up with with, uh, saying this, that the New Testament vision of uh, male and female that then is sort of ensconced in uh, marriage. So like what you're seeing in marriage, the relationship between the husband and the wife in marriage provides sort of a paradigm for the way that men and women should relate more generally in the world, right? And so what that is saying then is that men in the world are to use whatever power that they have in a sacrificial way to care for women in a way that elevates women to a place of mutual dignity and equality in the world, right? So this vision then has been worked out slowly, haltingly, uh, not uh, always perfectly over the last 2,000 years. And now we live in a world where by no means is it perfect, uh, but it is more uh, of an expression, just kind of zoomed back and don't look at all the individual instances, but look back as an expression of, of the whole. We live in a world that reflects the, uh, uh, the concern that Christianity has that women are brought into a place of mutual dignity and equality. Tom Holland, uh, there's Tom Holland of Spider-Man fame, and then there's Tom Holland, the British uh, Oxford historian. And I'm referring to that Tom Holland, not that Tom Holland. Uh, But Tom Holland, uh, the historian, he's written a book called Dominion. I don't know if any of you would have read it. It's a great book, but it's a big, fat book. It's like 700 pages long, so you have to really commit to it if you want to read it. Um, But he wrote a book, um, and the remarkable thing about uh, Holland is that he's, uh, he's... He's kind of Christianity adjacent. He was raised as a Christian, then he walked away from it. He's very progressive uh, in his overall orientation. Um, but he, uh, I'm going to close with this and then I'm going to be done. But he was, um, uh, he was getting into his, maybe his 40s and he was beginning to reflect on the fact, and he did a lot of work in Greco-Roman history, which is how I was introduced to him because I was doing my studies. And... Um, 
But he's a secular you know, historian doing work in Greco-Roman studies, and he was reflecting on how he much prefers to live in the 21st century West than he would have ever wanted to live in the first century Greco-Roman world. And he says, I love the Greco-Roman world, uh, but I like it sort of like you like a great white shark or the Tronosaurus Rex. Like you like to watch one on TV, but you wouldn't want to actually live or like swim with a great white shark or a Tronosaurus Rex. So he began to reflect on like, why is it or how is it that we got from there all the way to here? Like, why is it so much better now than it was then? And as he began to like kind of follow the thread of the sweater, you know, all the way back you know, to the beginning, his conclusion, and I won't take you through the whole book because it's 700 pages, but his conclusion ultimately is that it's Christianity. Christianity, he says, has been a liberating force in the world that has radically transformed and changed the way that the world thinks about power, the weak, and the vulnerable. And he says the reason that it's Christianity is because at the heart of Christianity, at the, at the molten center of Christianity, is the image, he says, of a God dead on the cross, and what he says, what is his insight in that, is that Christianity is centered around and worships a victim. That we recognize that Jesus has been victimized. And Jesus, in becoming a victim, has given dignity to victims. And so Holland recognizes that in the Greco Roman world, there was no dignity to victims. To be a victim was, it got you, no, it got you nothing. Like now in our culture, if you play the victim card, you can get all sorts of points. But, in a, but back in the Greco-Roman world, to play the victim card, you just got stepped on harder. There was nothing good about being a victim. But in our world, there is a thing about being a victim. It can get overused for sure, but we should all be glad that victims get recognized as needing to be taken care of. And Holland says the reason that it happened is because, because Christianity worships a victim, a risen victim, but someone who willingly chose to be a victim for the sake of others to release them from their victimhood. And that that message and that, that construal of what victimhood is all about got worked out eventually all throughout history in the West to the present day. And he begins his book, to bring this back to marriage and gender and these sorts of things, he begins his book by looking at the plight of women in the Greco-Roman world. And a lot of what I was talking about comes from his, his work. And it was just, it was a bad situation. But then he fast forwards, you know, 700 pages, gets to the end of his book, and he talks about the logic of the Me Too movement. And he says the Me Too movement, ironically, now remember, I got to remember all this, like he's not even a Christian. So this is, I think, pretty interesting. The, the Me Too movement, ironically, he says, is blaming Christianity for all the patriarchy that has led to all the oppression of women. He says, but the reality is that the Me Too movement has worked and has been triumphant, not perfectly, but it's been heeded because of Christianity. Because Christianity has recognized that women and those who are being victimized by male sexual power deserve to be heard. And he says that message does not exist in the West except for Christianity. Christianity has, is what has given legs to that message in the Western world. And so he says, ironically, you have uh, these women in the Me Too movement who are blaming Christianity for their oppression when he says the reality is if you go back far enough, you realize that Christianity is, in fact, the thing that has given them the uh, justification to 
proclaim their oppression and to be heard and to be taken seriously and cared for. So all that to say, by the end of the book, Holland is bringing back around, he's not arguing necessarily for uh, specifically related to a Christian vision of marriage, but he is arguing for a Christian vision of sexuality and the way uh, that Christianity taught the Western world to treat women through uh, the lens of Christ and then the Apostle Paul. All right, so that wasn't even in my notes. That was just free of charge. I just give that to you uh, there. But um, maybe to wrap all this up is to say, we live in a time and in a culture that does not take it for granted that Christianity is good for women, that Christianity is good for the weak, that Christianity is good for those who are possibly uh, can be oppressed. But what I would contend, and I think um, what can be demonstrated through the history of the Western world, which has embraced Christianity, is that, in fact, the reality is that Christianity has been very good uh, for uh, those who are prone to be oppressed, and it's been very good uh, for women. It hasn't been perfect by any means, and there are still all sorts of abuses that happen in our world that are uh, lamentable and that we should continue to work against. However, um, the image that, or the picture that the New Testament gives us of males using their power to exalt women into a place of mutual equality and dignity is being worked out in the Western world because of Christianity. Not perfectly, but it is being worked out in the world. And marriage is a microcosm, a little mini picture of how that is supposed to work. And so hang on to that uh, for whatever it's worth as you move uh, towards marriage or you talk to others about marriage or you think about uh, what God might be calling you to in that regard. But God loves us uh, and he wants what's best for us. And when he looks like he's constricting us in ways that we would um, not choose on our own, he actually is leading us into paths of blessing uh, and to grace if we can take a step back and look at the big picture. So, all right, let me pray for us all. God, thank you for uh, this group here, and thank you for um, uh, thank you for your love for them. And I pray uh, your peace and your blessing in their lives. Lord, these are uh, difficult topics uh, that they're wading through. Certainly, this is a difficult topic uh, that we uh, worked over tonight, and. Um, there's just a lot here, Lord, and I uh, don't feel like I've said everything that could or should be said or maybe even said it as well as it could be. But I, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, lead us into a place of recognizing uh, your goodness in our lives, your care for our lives. I pray that we would see your beauty uh, in marriage. We would see your beauty in the way that you have made us as men and women uh, to relate to each other in ways that reflect uh, the goodness of the gospel. And I pray that you would help us to trust your wisdom, that uh, you lay out for us a path that ultimately leads to blessing, and that we would trust you in that. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.